And once again, it is What's Involved. So good to have you along with us. I've got a fascinating guest on right now. Um, and I actually, when I saw like who he was and what he did, I thought, I, I need to speak to him. I really do. So here he is uh, joining me on this episode. It is Pagamisa Nzamela. How are you? Greetings, David, uh, to you, the Mix FM family, and your listeners. I'm, 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 I'm well. I'm well, David. Um, trying to recover, you know, after a long process of, of working on this project. But I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Now, the project we're talking about is an incredible book that you've uh, recently released called Native Merchants, the building of the back of the black business class in South Africa. Now, off the top of my head, I, I would have thought, no. Uh-uh. So I want to get into this book because I have found it absolutely fascinating. I've loved all of it. Um, so let's start off right at the very beginning, as I like to do with my guests. Tell me a little bit about Pagamisa. Sure. Um, so my name is Pagamisa Nzamela. Uh, I am 36 years old. I stay in Cape Town with, with my family, uh, my wife, Machema, and uh, two pint-sized dictators, um, Nolita, uh, who is eight years old, and uh, Vulingela, who is uh, three years old. So we've got a very small family. I come from the Eastern Cape, um, in Mtata, small town called Mtata. Uh, my wife comes from the Limpopo. So we're sitting right down on the tip of, of, of South Africa, and the family is way, way, way far. Um, as I've indicated, I grew up in the former trans guy, um, David, with a very interesting culture at home. We were not elite, certainly, but I can never, ever claim that uh, I grew up under absolute poverty. I grew up in a house, um, modest house with bricks and mortar. Um, my mother was a teacher at a rural school in the Transkei. She taught English second language. My father was a civil servant. Um, he did administrative stuff um, in what was then called Inland Revenue, which then morphed into SARS post-1994. Now, there's a culture of reading as, as we grew up. Every day, my old man bought newspapers. And without fail, every time we got back from school, he would have left his uh, newspaper on the coffee table. And me and my younger brother would feast on it. Of course, my mother taught a bit of Shakespeare, taught a bit of William Wordsworth, um, and so on. So we had a culture of, of reading in a modest home. And, and that's how I grew up. Okay. So a normal kind of, you know, youth and growing up and everything. What did you do when you finished school? Because you, you're a journalist, aren't you? Did you study journalism? Correct. I'm a trained journalist by trade. I call it a trade. Um, my friends always attack me and say, no, chief, journalism is not a profession. 
you do not have a council like uh, quantity surveyors or lawyers or chartered accountants. So <laughs> I'll, I'll stick to the term trade. Um, it, it doesn't offend me. <clears throat> I matriculated on the foothills of, uh, at a school placed on the foothills of the Drakensberg, Catholic school um, called Maria Zell, one of those missionary education establishments that were started to try and improve the educational well-being of Black people whilst also um, co-opting them into Christianity. Matriculated at Maria Zell and uh, went to Vets University. My father wanted me to be a lawyer, so I registered for a BA law at Vets University. I finished the BA undergrad and was supposed to go to law school for two years. I didn't want to do it, David. Um, so how did I escape? I got myself a scholarship and uh, Thomson Reuters, I was very blessed and I'm still grateful to Thomson Reuters for funding a BA honors or a postgraduate degree in journalism at Vets University. That is where I got introduced to journalism as a, as a cub under the tutelage of people like Anton Haber, um, Joanne Richardson, Leslie Cowling, Franz Kruger, and many others. Of course, my sister was a journalist too, but more on the back end. She was a sub-editor. So when I was at Vets University doing my undergrad, I had the privilege to read the Business Day back then, which um, was the turn of the millennium, the privilege to read the FT, Financial Times, because Business Day back then was related to the FT, it was a 50-50 JV. Um, so I'd read the FT, I would read the Business Day, the Financial Mail, Mail and Guardian, many other papers. And it, 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 did, it did have an impact or an input in me pursuing uh, journalism. Of course, when I was at VET, I was part of a Mail and Guardian society. And what we did back then, we would go to the Mail and Guardian um, and uh, we would tell them to give us, ask them <laughs> to give us a 50% discount on the paper and uh, we will find them subscribers. I think at some point we had about 400 or close to 500 odd um, Mail and Guardian subscribers at Vets University. Um, that also had an impact because you read people's stories and um, yeah, you know, reading, reading, reading channeled me to journalism, David. And of course, I, I chose a niche, which was financial journalism, thanks to another mentor of mine, Kugulori. Uh, when I got to Reuters, I uh, was asked to do political assignments at most. And Google said, listen, dude, um, we are not enough. <laughs> There's not enough uh, black financial journalists in this country. Please just try the stock market. And that's how it started, David. Yes, yeah, you didn't choose the easiest journalistic path, hey? I mean, financial journalism is 
Yeah, I take my hat off to you. But now, so, my, so you, yeah. did you write for, for, for these various uh, newspapers? And, and or, are you still doing that? Correct. So I wrote for Thomson Reuters. They gave me an internship because they had funded my honors in journalism. So they gave me an internship in Johannesburg and they gave me an opportunity to go and do a graduate program in London. And that's where they really taught me the basics of corporate action, writing about companies listed on a stock market, knowing the type of questions to ask when you're covering companies that are merging or you know, taking each other out. Um, that's what I, I, I ended up specializing in, in, uh, in finance journalism. So I wrote for Thomson Reuters. I worked for MoneyWeb, um, Alec Hawk. I did a stint at uh, ENCA, ETV, um, but it was very short. Um, I soon discovered that I belonged online or on print. I spent almost five years at Business Day and Financial Mail. And while at Business Day and Financial Mail, I had the privilege to have a secondment to go and write uh, for the Financial Times of London. Um, and that was 2015. So I'm no longer actively writing, David. Um, I work for a corporate now. Um, I work for an education company called uh, Curo Holdings. And uh, you know, part of our duty here is to try and make the country and the world better by educating the youth. So I am tasked with a fund called the Ruta Sichaba Foundation. And the duties of the Ruta Sichaba Foundation are to educate a deserving learner who is Black, as defined by the Black Economic Empowerment Act. So they've got to be strong academically. They've got to demonstrate financial need. So I go out to try and build partnerships so that corporates can donate to this fund and we can fund the tuition of learners. We currently have about 586-odd learners. Last year, we had about 50-odd grade 12s. They all passed 90% with university exemptions. 40% um, had uh, average A distinctions. So it's a, it's a very good modest effort. I am still linked to the media um, as part of living up to my name, Pagamisa. I produce a community radio show once a month, month end in KwaZulu Natal. It's called Radio Kwezi. Um, we do a personal finance show that guides people in rural areas and townships of KwaZulu Natal, you know, on how they can make their wallet work for them. Um, yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do, David. And I parent and I husband. <laughs> and I try and research. <laughs> and those are those are those are that all full-time jobs, all of them. Um, yeah. we are turning to my special guest, 
Pakawita Nzamela, um, and we're going to get on to uh, the book that has just been published called Native Merchants, The Building of the Black Business Class in South Africa. I'm going to find out why the book when we come back. This is what's involved. And we're back with my special guest, Pagamisa Nzamela. Okay, so I can kind of understand, you know, with your with your financial journalism background, et cetera, et cetera. But why did you decide to write this book? Sure. So, so as, as, as you say, David, if you are a journalist, um, there's always a bigger ambition to write beyond the pages of your newspaper or of your website. So everybody or many people in the newsroom will have an ambition of writing books. Um, There's a gentleman called Patrick Bulger. What a great man. He used to be executive editor at Business Day. Um, Was a page one editor when I was there. And um, one evening, you know, we had a late deadline. I was writing a front page and um, we're trying to suck out all the information needed to make this front page great. Patrick comes to me, he says, uh, Buddy, you know, I think you could do a biography, a contemporary biography on a black businessman on black economic empowerment. So he then introduced me to some people in the publishing industry. And um, we explored that with a friend of mine, Lindo Tulu. Um, we went around Johannesburg and across the country talking to black economically empowered business people and professionals. And as we interviewed them, there was one uniform view, David that we've got to go back. We cannot talk about black economic empowerment or critique it without understanding why it came into the fore in the first place. So that triggered me. Um, I then started reading back, reading back, reading back, because people had suggested literature I had to read people such as Colin Bundy, um, The Rise and Fall of the Black Peasantry in South Africa. You know, I had to read people such as Andre Ordendal, um, who wrote Vukandi Bantu um, and uh, The Founders, and many other, many other authors, David. Now, there's this friend of mine, uh, Tembeka, Okay, Toby is a lawyer. He's very driven, and in anything that he does, he says, if you want to have an impact, um, identify the lacuna. So as I dug deep, he said, listen, I've been reading. He's an avid reader. I haven't seen anybody that is trying to do what you are doing. Just make sure that you research deeper. So he introduced me to the primary sourcing methodology in, in, in the archives. You know, he spent his time showing me how do you dig into documents? How do you page through old newspapers? 
of the 19th century. That's the pretext. But I wrote this book, David, to close a gap um, in, in, in the market. It's, I found it disappointing that you know, we were never taught about the stories in native merchants at a basic education level or even at a higher education level. And that anomaly continues today. However, I couldn't blame anybody except ourselves because it is not the duty of anybody to collect data. It is a duty of everybody. So I thought I'll make a modest contribution to society. It is not perfect, but I said I'll start and make a modest contribution and I wrote Native Merchants. You know what? I think I think it's it's the kind of book that everybody needs to read because when I came across it, I was like, "Wow, I didn't I didn't know that." And I mean, there is there's this popular theory that goes around that uh, in terms of black business, um, the only successful ones are the tenderpreneurs. You know, and it's and it's a very skewed viewpoint, and it's very wrong. I mean. Just reading through your book, you know, and, and, and I understand as well, native merchants uh, refers to people who are involved in business who are native to this country or to the continent. Now, what I want to do, though, is, is just chat a little bit about this and, and go, okay, so let's select some stories as we go through the book because the book is, is incredibly, I mean, I know I can see where you've sort of honed your craft. You go as far back um, to, to miners in the, the pre-colonial era, and you talk about the diamond fields. Let's just take one little snippet of information from there. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. So, so David, um, on mining, you know, there's a focus on the period of the 900s to 1300s. Right, um, AD, AD 900 to 1300. I hope the listeners will understand those years. So, after the 1300s to the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and now we're in the 2000s. So, on mining, I took some time researching a period called Middle Iron Age. This is the 900s to the 1300s. Now, in that period, we had natives in Southern Africa mining gold in areas such as Mapungube, mining iron ore and smelting in Broderstrom, close to what is today Harder-Bies Sport Dam. The vendor people, you know, were also mining um, in places such as uh, Makado, they had praised mountains, they were called Iron Mountains of Chimbukfe. You know, they would go dig for gold or copper, or any precious metal. And it was exported to the Asian market way back, David. How? The Indian Ocean, Sofala, this is the part between Tanzania and Mozambique. So it would move from north of Limpopo um, into, into, in, in, into, the, into the Indian Ocean. And, 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 and that's how that, 
that export market work you know now how did they mine you know if if you read the story about the musina people in the book um, musina is now in what was called messina um in limpopo so the musina people would go to their mines you know they would mine with hammers and uh crowbars you know the crowbars were used for digging and were made out of a piece of iron you know inserted into a heavy stick now you'll ask yourself you know this is between 900 and 1300 where did they get the iron to dig where did how did they make that crowbar they would smelt and they used what is similar to a pizza hut um nowadays david that's what was used in in as a as a as a smelting tool so they would use this crowbar for digging but um they had a shaft too you know so how would they sink the shaft because the shaft is this thing that is tied by chains it's like an elevator it goes down underground and it goes up how did they do that you know they made the bellows you know of the shaft you know using kai hide cow hide or the skins of an antelope now cow hide is very tough or antelope hide is very tough they would cut it into strips plait it and create very long cords of leather which could not break or would not break um they would then create a basket um in those baskets were made of grass like tough grass now tie that leather into a basket and the people would go inside that basket girls and boys and uh, the shaft would be sunk in they mined copper underground they used candles <laughs> to light up um and 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 that's how it 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 happened um and when the copper or the ore um was brought in you know um they would break it up again and uh clean it up and uh yeah smelt it as 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 people do in 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 mining today and uh people would get their shares um some would uh take it to market um internationally it did not just happen in uh, in in limpopo david i must say there's an area in uh, kwazulu natal that was called kwaganda ganda on the banks of ngeni river um there they also had um mining um in the 7th and um early 11th century so this is you know the 1000s um mostly mostly and um they they did a number they did a number of things there that were similar to to the iron ore um and gold that was mined in uh, in in limpopo of course there was a decline in limpopo um and academics have pointed or attributed that decline to some climate um i do indicate in the book that um the people of musina were sometimes not viewed 
in a good light because they had this pride as uh, miners and uh, people who were only involved in agriculture were not taken seriously. So there, were, there was an element of pride, but the, the attribution um, of the decline, um, geologists have said it was, it was climatic. I then, I then, you know, yeah. Okay, Mr. Sorry, I wanted to move to diamonds, yes. So I'll, I'll, I'll allow you, David, to ask the question. Sorry, man. There's just, you know what, we, we, there's so much in this book and it's so fascinating. Um, but we also, we are limited by the time that we can spend together. Yeah. So when we come sure. back, let's jump, uh, let's jump a little further ahead because I want to talk about, you know, because we had literally in Africa, there were thriving economies. Um, and then yes. Europeans came and for want of a better word, stuffed it all up. So when yeah. we come back, let's talk a little bit more about that. This is what's involved. Okay. And my special guest is Pagamisa and Zamela. Back in just a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Pagamisa and Zamela, author of this fantastic book, Native Merchants, The Building of the Black Business Class in South Africa. So if we move on through, through history, then, um, and we're going to have to gloss over some of it because people must sure. read the book. They sure. have to read this sure. book. Um, but <clears throat> we had the time when the European settlers came in and, you know, a lot of stuff got changed and, you know, suddenly, you know, People could do stuff, and that was mainly because we had cheap black labor. And the whole yeah. sort of concept there was keep the native people ignorant and make sure you don't give them any, any sort of uh, advantages or, or anything like that so that we've got cheap labor to continue working. Even during those times, though, and as we moved into to the apartheid era, there, will, there were still native merchants, let's call it that as the, as the general sort of term, that yeah. were getting on with life and getting on with running a business. So, so bring us a little bit further forward in history um, and, and let's talk about some of these different kinds of merchants that we had because, you know, as I mentioned, I think, you know, the, the, the misconception is that, you know, uh, black people didn't do any business uh, and, uh, you know, the whites came along and did their thing. And then suddenly in 1994, we had a whole bunch of black businessmen. That's not true. So sure, talk about sure. some of the different classes of, of – because you had sure, merchants sure. in various places. Sure, sure. So and, 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 and I'll gloss over it, David, um, so that um, I allow the listener to also read by themselves. So if you continue on the path of mining – now, diamond mining, you might ask yourself, what were the Khoi people? You know, um, what were the Botswana? <laughs> you know, everybody, you know, who may be called a native of South Africa doing when people bought steamship tickets, you know, or ship tickets from America, Australia, coming to Kimberley, you know, to dig diamonds. The reality is that in the early days, um, after 1867's most famous find, everybody flocked black and white to the diggings in Kimberley. Back then, David, you could not distinguish between a black man and a white man because everybody was covered in soot. <laughs> you know, it was just dust 
all over, you know. And black people, black men, black women were allowed to dig diamonds. In September 1870, David, a Khoi woman of the Korana group sold a 61-carat diamond for 300 pounds or its equivalent in oxen and wagon. Now, what happens to those people who are digging, the black people who are digging in, uh, in, in Kimberley? A mob that could not compete, David, and as you say, that needed labor and only saw black people as labor, decided that they were going to pass certain laws that would prohibit black people from mining. So in 1875, you know, um, in 1874, you had about 129 black people with licenses in an area called Balfontaine. Um, those people lost their licenses in 1875, David. The rest is history. Black people were kicked out of mining. You know, you, you, you come to Cape Town, where I am. You know, there's a doctor whose story, I think, needs to be told more and more. His name is Abdullah Abdurrahman. He was an activist. He started what was called the African People's Organization um, in 1902. You know, the APO had a building society, David, in Claremont, Cape Town. That building society operated in Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, Kimberley. Its shareholders were largely colored people and uh, it had a few European people. In 1935, David, the APO Building Society, started by colored people, had about 106,000 pounds in assets. And those, and, and that money was used, you know, to finance houses and, and build businesses. You know, they, they could raise capital. People were building hotels, David, you know, people were starting newspapers. People, you know, had transport businesses. They moved from the creaking ox wagon. They started owning buses. You can call it, um, you know, in, in, in all sectors, financial services, newspapers, in hoteliering, retail, artisans. They did this. That is what I find so fascinating. And there's many, many stories in the book about many people and and it's that's why I'm talking to you because this needs to be shared people need to know about this um, and it's people of our country and, and, and the rest of Africa as far as I'm concerned um, we're gonna wrap it up because I want to find out you know if we go back from history and we've now moved through forward in time where where are we now and where do you see us going so we'll do that when we come back this is what's involved my special guest is pagamisa nzamela who's the author of native merchants the building of the black business class in south africa back in a bit and we're back with uh, pagamisa nzamela so just before the break we were talking about these these different areas and aspects of business that native people were involved in um, and, and we move forward, and, and this is what I, I need to make this distinction of, because learning this, these people didn't just suddenly go away. They didn't just decide, oh, well, no, we'd rather prefer to be laborers. They, they were marginalized. But where do we stand now in terms of, of businesses? Because this idea of tenderpreneurs to me is, is inherently flawed. 
you, you know, David, part of the lessons in the book, I, I didn't write a self-help book, but part of the glaring lessons in the book, I mentioned the APO, which was started by colored people in Cape Town, you know, and they had hundreds of thousands in pounds savings, you know, in the 1920s. Here's one lesson. I don't think there's a real shortage of capital. Um, I might be understating it, um, but what we learned from the book is that if people come together and they put in a rand each or 100 rand or 1,000 rand, they will have the capital. And that is how the old natives did it. People have got to come together and say, we have stockfells. Instead of breaking money at the end of the year, you know, people save, you hear people having saved 200,000. And in December, there's a split amongst 10 people, each takes 20. And all that money is consumed in a few days. Um, there are stockfells that invest, but I think those that are still consuming their hard-end savings could learn from, from, from the native merchants of the past. Of course, um, history is not um, linear, David. Native merchants, as much as it talks about natives fighting against all odds, they also had a non-racial approach. You know, they espoused non-racialism. They did, in certain instances, people like Z.K. Matthews, work with white people um, with the necessary skills in building a financial services firm. So we've got to work together in a non-racial manner. Black people are not going to do it by themselves. We're not saying they cannot do it by themselves. They do have the capability, but we're also building a country here and we must espouse non-racialism. Now, here's the thing to the now. Black empowerment has created a lot of black business people. Um, the system is not perfect, but um, a lot of black people, people like me have been affirmed to work in places that could not have been imagined you know, in the 19th century. Here's the trick for people who have started businesses. If you look at all these empowerment companies, David, my worry, and I'm not going to take cheap pot shots, if you were to go to their websites, you, and ask yourself, you know what, where is the layer of the next management? Succession planning. So as much as the old native merchants worked against all odds and they were punished by uncompetitive racial behavior and laws, they also had their faults and succession planning was an issue there where businesses cannot go beyond the second generation or a first generation. Um, I am worried that we might have that situation with black economic empowerment companies. And it would be sad if those companies do not reach at least half a century or a century. It would take us a step back. Those are some of the lessons that I think I can share. <clears throat> Absolutely. And you know what, as well, and it struck me whilst reading this book, is that, you know, we actually got it right before. 
like you know, a good good couple of years ago, but we got it right. We could all work together, um, and then everything got you know what happened happened, and, and unfortunately, you know, we we can try and rewrite the history books, but it's not going to change the facts. This is what I love, and this is why I love doing what I do because I, I keep on telling. Uh, the people that ask me, I'm a storyteller. I love stories. I love listening to stories and I love sharing stories. And these stories of yours are the kind of stories that need to be told so that we can get a better understanding. It's about communicating. And uh, I just think it's such a well-written book, Pagamisa. And uh, you know, you need to go out and get it. You can get it uh, at all good bookstores and online as well. Hey. Correct. Correct. Um, the large, I won't mention a brand but the larger online providers uh, do, do have it in Kindle edition too. So if you don't like paper trail, um, you can buy a soft online version. There you go. And uh, listen, I think this should become mandatory reading, mandatory stuff that they teach in our schools as well, because it will give people a sense of pride of, of what our ancestors did and how they were capable and it's just it's a fantastic story but Gavisa, before i let you go though i mean now the book is out and now you you're, you're obviously going to be having to do the rounds and, and promote the book but what's next for pangamisa and zamela <laughs> you know i continue to to read david um, i spend my evenings at home um, reading i spend my discretionary you know, spent on uh, buying books that are running out of print. Um, I need to give native merchants um, some life, but I am already working on the next project. Um, I won't won't mention it now, but um, I I am already reading hard, you know, preparing for preparing a sibling of, of native merchants. Wonderful. Well, I'm putting my name down. Yeah, I'm putting my name down right now to talk to you first about that. Okay. Okay. Perfect. 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 So just pencil it five years time. Yeah, no pencil into the diary. If 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 I'm still around and broadcasting, we're going to do this thing. Appreciate it, David, and thank you so much. You know, for your bias on storytelling, especially local stories. Um. May you continue to be blessed, David, for the work that you do at MixFM with your colleagues. And uh, may you do what you've done for me to other authors too. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Wonderful stuff. And it's my absolute pleasure, Pagamisa. Thank you so much for taking the time out and chatting to us. Uh, I wish you all the very best with the book. And I look forward to hearing about your new projects as well. Thank you. Thanks, David. There we go. Wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. My special guest there, Pagamisa Nzamela, Native Merchants, The Building of the Black Business Class in South Africa, a book that is well worth a read. History that hasn't been taught to us, stuff we didn't know about. You need to go out, you need to get it, and you need to read it. So it wraps it up to each and every one of you. Look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening. <music>